This is Conversations on the Arts. I'm Mary Krieger. I'm really thrilled to have as my guest today Michelle Grabner, co-curator with Stuart Comer, chief curator of media and performance at MoMA, and Anthony Elms, an artist and the associate curator of the Institute of Contemporary Art in Philadelphia and the editor of White Walls, an independent publisher distributed through University of Chicago Press, of the 2014 Whitney Biennial, the last biennial to be held at the Marcel Breuer Building. Michelle Grabner is an artist and the first exhibiting artist to curate the Whitney Biennial. She is professor and the chair of painting and drawing at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and a regular contributor to Art Forum, Art Agenda, and Extra. She has exhibited nationally and internationally. Uh, Michelle Grabner is represented by Shane Campbell Gallery in Chicago and Mosseri Marlio in Zurich and the James Cohan Gallery in New York City. She is co-editor of the anthology The Studio Reader with curator Mary Jane Jacob, published by University of Chicago Press. With, with her husband, the artist Brad Killam, she runs the artist space The Suburban in Chicago and The Poor Farm in northeastern Wisconsin. She was appointed visiting professor in painting and drawing at Yale in 2011. Thank you so much for doing this interview. Thank you. Thank you for talking with me. So, I think we start with a little bit of a backstory. Um, can we talk? I'd like to ask you about your journey, kind of in the beginning when you started the suburban. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Tell me how this how this institution came about. How you started it. Uh, what made you decide to open up a space? Uh, mm -hmm. and, and the backstory on that. Sure. And the poor farm. Sure, sure. Uh, right after grad school, my husband and I we went. To, we received our our uh, MFAs in Chicago. I received my MFA at, at Northwestern. My husband went through University of Illinois at Chicago. And immediately after graduating, we moved up to Milwaukee just because Milwaukee was a smaller city. It was less expensive. We had a small family. We had two little children at the time. And Milwaukee is structured very differently than Chicago, where Chicago has criticism institutions, uh, art institutions. It has commercial galleries. Milwaukee, not so much. Milwaukee is, um, uh, has a lot of, uh, had a lot of freedom to do um, things, but it didn't have the structures in place that we were used to, that we were um, uh, taking advantage of when we were in Chicago. So in Milwaukee, I ended up starting, uh, I never thought I would become a critic, but I started to write for Freeze. Um, I started to do some curating where we could bring some of our colleagues who came out of uh, grad school in Chicago, bring them up to Milwaukee. So it was really Milwaukee moving to uh, moving off center um, in terms of the Midwest that uh, kind of forced me to take on these other roles. So when we moved back to Chicago in 2000, excuse me, in 1997, um, you know, we just kind of continued uh, the kind of DIY that we were doing in Milwaukee, and we opened up the Suburban in 1999. And why did you call it suburb? Mm, because we live in Oak Park, Illinois. So Oak Park is a first spring suburb of Chicago. Um, Oak Park is known for um, its Frank Lloyd Wright uh, buildings, its homes. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright, at the turn of last century, um, built his home and studio in Oak Park. So it's a first spring suburb uh, of Chicago. So we just decided to call it the suburban, um, as opposed to you know, most of these galleries or like-minded galleries and spaces were in the city proper. And... Um Tell me about some of the programs you had there. Yeah, you know, it's uh, we, we invite artists to do whatever they want for the most part. Um, you know, and there are artists that you will recognize who've had projects there. Luke Toymans um, had an exhibition in 2003. Uh, uh, Katerina Grossa, these are people that we all know from, uh, you know, names in the art world. And then artists that you may not know who come from New Zealand or the UK or Dusseldorf. Um, you know, for a while there, we were actively not showing Chicago-based artists. We were hoping that the suburban would be a place to contextualize what's already happening in the Midwest or what's already happening in Chicago. And in the last couple of years, we've kind of broken down uh, that uh, policy, if, if you will, um, where we're juxtaposing um, artists from Chicago uh, with artists outside of Chicago, um, you know, whether that's St. Louis or whether that is uh, Cologne or Berlin. Um. Okay, so now I wanted to talk about, just for a minute, your book, The Studio Reader, yeah. uh, with Mary Jane Jacob, and the idea of the studio, because I think this book, the, sh the show, the, the way mm -hmm. you curated the biennial, this will be relevant. Um, tell us about that book um, and what you feel is the, the issue of the studio right now. Yeah, and, and the issue of the studio has, or the idea or topic of the studio has evolved um, 
the last handful of years, I would, I'd like to say in 2008, before the market collapsed, Mary Jane Jacobs approached, approached me and, and was um, just asking me if I had any ideas for exhibitions. Um, uh, Mary Jane Jacobs is director of programming um, uh, and exhibitions at the School of the Art Institute. And I said, I've been thinking a lot about uh, the studio. And at that time, the market collapsed. And um, But before that, um, you know. I believe this is 1991? Or? Uh, no, this is 80, no, I'm sorry, 2000 and, 2008. Okay. Oh, 2008. Yeah, 2008. Yes. So not, right. not uh, the market, but the economy. Exactly, the economy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, you're right. The, the uh, uh, break of the world. Um, we're standing at the break of the world. Um, and right. it was interesting to me because uh, prior to uh, that collapse, um, there was so much conversation around uh, the distribution and consumption of artwork that I felt that artists weren't having a say in their own discourse and what they were thinking about. Um, you know, money was moving around and money was moving uh, inventory around and I was getting frustrated as an artist that I wasn't part of that discussion, um, that artists weren't part of that discussion. So um, uh, to think about the studio as a place of art, art production, the place of artists, um, and kind of turn the lens to that site. Um, you know, so while I was thinking about that and kind of getting irritated, um, you know, responded to the idea of the studio because of the lack of discussion, um, you know, the market collapsed. So there was kind of great hope for me that, um, you know, that uh, discourse would kind of level out anyways. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, it seems like uh, these moments where everything mm -hmm. collapses, mm -hmm. new things come up and mm -hmm. come up. Right. You know, I mean, my That's right. art of the 90s came out of the collapse of the market. In the 87. In yeah. 87. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, what, what, I, I actually do want to sort of make the connection here between the fact that you, know, you, you sort of see upon your, I see in your journey, I don't know if this is true, but from, from an outsider looking in, that you sort of, you sort of take it upon yourself to create scenes. Yeah, to create, yeah. uh, to create, like in other words, it's suburban to me. It's not mm -hmm. just, you know, I think I've opened mm -hmm. up the space in my, and it is, isn't it in your house? No, it is. It, well, it's, it's, in your, it's, it's in our uh, backyard. Tom Solomon's garage was a great influence on us. So we were understanding what was going on there, and that empowered us to think about the suburban. Oh, really? Okay. Yep. So this idea that you can you know, just take it upon yourself, you know, okay, the market may not be paying attention to you, but let's create mm -hmm. our own world, mm -hmm. let's create our own scene. Um, and the same thing with the studio, these people talk about, even though we, we you know, in some of the articles, because like, one article John Baldessari talks about, um, he, he's supposed to be post-studio art. Right. You know, we're in this period right. of post-studio art. That's right. I mean, you go to conceptual art, you go out into this into the street, you don't need a studio. But yet he had five studios. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So that artists can find places to work. That's right. Anywhere. That's uh, right. And we included some of those post-studio practices in the studio reader. Um, David Robbins would be an example of that, where you know he works off of his laptop and some computers in a in, a, in what we would consider a, a study or a den. Um, and even through the process of the biennial, you know, my, it was really important for me to go to visit artists in their studios. Not everybody had a studio. Often I would meet with them on their laptop out on a picnic bench over the summer. Um, so that's you know we understand that to be the case. As a matter of fact, not too long ago I was on a post post studio panel. I wasn't quite sure what we were talking about there, but uh, that just underscores that, uh, um, you know, the studio is also a metaphor. It doesn't necessarily exactly. have to be a space. Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay. Now, to get started on the biennial, there are three of you doing this um, exhibition, and it's at the Whitney. It's the last um, show. Is it the last show at the Spirit Marcel Breyer Building? Um, no. It's the last biennial. It's the last biennial. After the biennial closes on May 25th, in June of this year, um, Scott Rathcoff is opening up a Jeff Koon show that will occupy the entire museum. And then um, this museum will close. The Met will move in. The Metropolitan mm -hmm. will move in. Um, the Whitney is leasing it to the Met for uh, seven, seven to eight years. And in May of 2015, the doors will open on the new Renzo Piano Whitney Museum of American Art downtown. I see. So this is a historic show. This is a show that's, you know, and of course it's American art mm -hmm. because um, 
Mrs. Whitney mm -hmm. stipulated that um, they only had to have American art in this uh, That's right. exhibition, in this museum. So what do you, the idea of American art, what is American art um, and now, basically? Um, so how did you address this? Because I noticed that, that you sort of blurred the vision, the word American art. Like, who are, how did you address that issue? Of yeah, no, art? that's, uh, you know, it's, the hardest question for me to answer only because maybe I don't have an answer because I did not approach thinking about what the biennial would be with that frame. Um, I think biennials are popping up everywhere. We have them in Los Angeles. We have them throughout the world. Um, maybe even fewer biennials in the States than in other countries right. globally. That geography didn't make sense for me. Um, you know, I understood that, you know, I was selected to be a curator because I come from the Midwest, I come from off-center, um, and that has definitely represented the show, but I didn't, you know, I don't know what American art is anymore. Right. Um, and I right. think, you know, I, I talk a lot about the free market and the freedoms that the free market provides in terms of what can come to, what we can bring to market, whether that's Joel Otterson, who is on the fourth floor in his macrame, or Sheila Hicks's fiber works, or, um, you know, a, a handful of ceramics. So, there's no divide. The, the free market, you know, will make space for um, all kinds of forms, um, and that was more interesting to me. And I think that is more truthful to where we're at now than something like the idea of what is American art. Um, I have a handful of Canadians in my show. Um, Peter Schuff, who we know from New York in the '80s, um, you know, he's a Dutch national. <laughs> oh, really? oh, okay. So it, it, it was kind of blurred. You, don't, you, didn't, you didn't have to even stuck to that stick to that. Yeah, yeah. We had some conversations. It's, it's, uh, the, the group of us, we through curators were talking about you know, what this meant and what the limitations were. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, um, you know, the institution, the Whitney, you know, said we can absolutely go to Mexico City if we wanted to consider um, uh, you know, Central America or Mesoamerica to be to be a kind of frame of what America is. Um, you know, it was the budget that prevented us from that kind of reach, quite honestly. I mean, there are limitations. Did you have to have people who, who actually lived in America? Or no, no. no, and a matter of fact, it, it, we've been seeing this uh, in the past. Um, I can't, I'm not going to be able to give you uh, the very first example of a non-American, a European, as a Kai Altoff was in a biennial not too long ago. Um, you know, so there, you know, what's happening so with artists now? Right, so it didn't, you know, it wasn't a big issue. No, for me it wasn't a big issue. Okay. So what about the building itself, the idea that you're the last show in this building? Did you, did yeah. you, you address that? Was that something that you, you Yeah, you know, I want to say that that's something that Anthony Elms really took on as an organizing factor for the second floor and how he was thinking about um, how he he would build his uh, biennial, his uh, section of the biennial. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I quite love this building, but I didn't feel like I needed to fetishize it. Um, and I also, uh, you know, being pulled to and feeling, you know, empowered to show a lot of painting and sculpture. Um, that, uh, you know, this is something that Breuer built this building for. I mean, that was the art form when he built this building. So I figured that, you know, uh, just by the nature of what I was gravitating to, would sit and be cited very well in his volumes. Um, but again, uh, it was and something that I was making overly precious. Um, you know, there is uh, Zoe Leonard's big camera obscura up on my floor, which you know is is probably the you know yeah. pinnacle piece of acknowledging uh, this building um, and the site and the history of this building. But uh, Zoe was one of Anthony's selections, so that was a kind of a negotiation wow. we had. If I could take the fourth floor, which has the most volume, um, that I would share some of that floor with one of his artists, and that's where we have oh, the camera obscura. Yeah, I a little okay, trading. Yeah, that's yeah. Your, yeah. I see. yeah. Uh, let's talk about painting, mm -hmm. the, the painters. Mm -hmm. You chose quite a few painters, yep. abstract painters mm -hmm. primarily. Mm -hmm. what, do you, what's, what do you see is, is happening in this moment in abstract painting and, and, and specifically discuss the artists that you've picked for this? Yeah, you, you know, I, I kind of, when I was thinking about painting, I was thinking about women artists and how they're taking on abstraction, um, the attitude of abstraction, the authority of the language itself, um, and how they're really kind of moving that language around. And the, the, the five artists that I was really thinking about, we have Molly Suckerman, Hartong, Louise Fishman, Donna Nelson, Laura Owens, and Jacqueline Humphreys. And it's interesting because they all they all 
there, there's nothing, there's no vocabulary. You can't look at their work and say, oh, there's similarities there. I mean, outside of the uh, outside of abstraction, but in terms of oh, and Amy Silman too, and Amy Silman and Pam Lands, and you know how Amy Silman thinks about form and color and the kind of master stroke and how she's kind of reconfiguring it in the here and now and how she worked with Pam Linz on creating three-dimensional elements and a base for painting. Um, I think something that is uh, uh, maybe a common thread uh, with all the artists is the relationship to the back of the painting or the structure of the painting. So Donna Nelson, you can see both sides of the painting. Um, Why do you think they're doing that? Well, you know, it, it, I'm not an expert in this, um, but uh, there's some conversation, uh, particularly within the academy, about the queering of painting and the queering of painting and the revealing of the back, um, the back side of it, but also the performing of painting itself, um, the action of making the painting, that it becomes an artifact of um, a body in motion, a body kind of dealing with and confronting the structures of painting, um, whether that's the canvas, whether that's the stretcher, um, you know, the scale. So uh, a kind of theater, but not the theater that the uh, you know theater we think of when we think of Jackson Pollock, um, you know, who is in it, um, but a, a kind of a direct confrontation with um, uh, uh, painting on a, a kind of one-to-one -one level, not standing in it. Again, how we think about Pollock or leaning over it, um, but these women are in their studios really confronting these large-scale um, uh, fields um, with the, and, and one can see, you know, very differently how, you know, the body interacts with these surfaces and with, again, the authority and its history. In what way? Well, again, you know, particularly with Louise Fishman, I mean, I think she's a really good example. Um, and we were talking a little bit earlier about um, a somewhat kind of categorical dismissal by the critic Colin Cotter. Um, you know, because she is, you know, looking to um, invention and surface composition, color, um, by approaching painting in a, you know, in a way that we understand, in a kind of a New York School uh, model. Um, you know, somebody like Laura Owens is using appropriation. And a matter of fact, what people don't know with the Laura Owens painting is that she hung three paintings behind the painting that's on the wall. So within the stretcher of the monumental painting that you see, the large-scale painting that you see, are three other paintings and a sketchbook. And she's really talking about, um, you know, the issues between public and private and these paintings um, that she has protected um, from the public, but it's a very specific public. It's the public of the Whitney Biennial, and that just speaks to how contentious this exhibition is um, and the scrutiny that one uh, uh, viewers take to this, uh, this exhibition. Um, you know, there has been a lot of talk about, uh, there's been a, a lot of exchange right now. Mark Godfrey, who's a, a critic based in London, has been talking about uh, women and the relationship to painting and how they are looking for the unknown. So whether that Charlene Van Heil, who's not on my floor, but on Anthony's floor, but a, a kind of search for uh, a, a search for uh, what is not known. Um, and that's very interesting to me and, and quite honestly very different than my own practice. Um, you know, I, I have a repetitive practice that really kind of underscores what is known again and again. So these artists, these women artists, um, uh, you know, using painting in very different ways of kind of uh, different languages, different uh, uh, methods, um, to kind of crack open, um, you know, these places of the impossibility of knowing what painting is, knowing what gender is, knowing what our world is. Now, um, I wanted to talk about sculpt sculpture, mm -hmm. and um, you have to, uh, in your essay you talk about a discourse revolving around uh, craft and fibers. And you call it, what do you call it, material? Oh, material. The new materialism. Yes. Um, can you talk about that? Your, you know, what is a new materialism? And also the history. Are you mentioning people like John Mason? Yes. Um, and Sheila Hicks. Yeah. Sheila Hicks. Um, tell you, you know, why, what is going on with that? What are you doing there? Yeah, it's interesting because... Um, and what is a new material? Yeah, it, it, you know, within the academy, uh, I, I have a, my older son is... Um, is getting his PhD at the University of Wisconsin in, in the English department, and they're reading affect theory. We're reading affect theory in the studio department at the School of the Art Institute or at Yale. So, um, you know, and it, it's, you know, it's not overtly political, and this is uh, something I, I found a bit problematic with some of the press that's coming out where they're saying this is, um, you know, a decidingly not a political uh, biennial. And 
uh, quite honestly, new materialism kind of is, yeah. is very it, it, well. Yeah. But that's what affect is, right? So they, you know, I structured my biennial around um, you know kind of two big cacophonous rooms. There's a lot going on in these two galleries um, behind the Gaylord Gerber wall, and uh, the gallery two, if you come off the elevator to the right, is really dealing with a kind of critique, a discourse. It's the you you read that show. There's a lot of text. Um, there's a lot of cultural signifiers that you come to understand, and you can see that they're, um, you know, undercutting everything from media culture to authorship um, to the institution. You see a lot of critical um, practices at play. And then when you go into the large central gallery, it's the other. You start feeling your way through that work, um, whether it's with the paintings or whether it's, you know, the large-scale tumbling fiber work by Sheila Hicks or the basins by Sterling Ruby. And, you know, I, I keep defaulting to the fact that it's, uh, you know, whether it's, it's, it's both an aesthetic but it's a politic, it's in response to 9-11. Um, and that's when you saw affect theory kind of coming to the fore in the academy. And for all of our reasoning, our logic, our security that was in place, we still cannot understand what happened that day. And at no other time do I remember in, you know, my relationship, my kind of modern relationship with the art world um, or, or with life, a consciousness within uh, my own way in the world, that... Um, um, are we comfortable with our intuition, our feeling our way through the world? We're actually very uncomfortable with critique, with irony, with appropriation, those other tools of you know, coming to understand through a kind of, uh, again, a direct logic through language, the kind of undoing. Um, but we do, we're very comfortable with um, you know, how we feel, how we pull, being pulled by kind of the center of the gut. Um, and again, we see that within society, and we go to the airport, and you know, it's, you know, the threat level is orange. Is the color, um, and that's a way of understanding, you know, our relationship to the world, and, and you know, any kind of given threat in any given time. So, so that's in a nutshell, a kind of a, a loose and very generalized, actually, scope of what um, affect theory or new materialism is. Um, and I think that's very political. I mean, that's talking about who we are now. Um, but again, it doesn't manifest as you know political signifiers, as does actually the politics in the room that deals with you know objects that are um, objects. Image Images um, uh, that deal with critique. So, um, and then, then also with some of the, the materialism that you're seeing in that space, also speaks to what we were talking about before, and that is. Um, you know, the free market that is allowing um, things that were traditionally craft to come to a fine arts uh, discourse, a fine arts frame. Um, so you see that um, as well. Now, um, okay. There, there are several pieces in the show that you have artists putting up a background where other artists are, mm -hmm. you know, are putting uh, pieces and to talk about that, why, why is that something that you, that you decided? Yeah, no, that's that's an excellent uh, uh, question, observation, and it, it's also one of the very rare threads of uh, connectivity that goes through all floors. So you'll see that in Stewart's floor where you have Julie Alt curating a show within a show, um, or Richard Hawkins and Kathy Opie um, organizing a, a Tony Green, small Tony Green survey. So you see that throughout all three exhibitions. Um, Do you something you discussed? No, yeah, no, that's something that um, uh, we did not discuss that. And so that, you know, so I think if we're going to use uh, the biennial as um, a measure, a kind of uh, a way of you know looking at what are some of the you know th things that are going on within the art world. That would be one thing that popped up in all floors. And otherwise, there's really different sensibilities in terms of artists and, why, and organization. Why for this moment is that happening? You know, I have or I have my theories. Sure, sure. No, I I have I have my theories. Um, and again, you know, Stewart I think approaches it very differently. He's talking about other histories coming forward. That here's artists who can have access to archives, who can put forward other histories. That's absolutely the case. Um, I also think uh, in, in terms of authorship, so that one gallery I was talking about that has Carl Handel, Gretchen Bender, uh, David Diao, um, Ken Lum, um, Sarah Charlesworth, I mean, again, dealing with cultural signifiers, you know, the act of appropriating, of creating or stealing um, and representing a cultural signifier is actually a very slow process given today's technology that we 
we we steal, we borrow, we move images around all the time on our computers, um, you know, or we're sending them out on Instagram that the actual decision to um, identify a signifier and to pull it out of one context and put it into a new context is particularly slow, almost antiquated in terms of how we think about imagery today. That's really the circulation of imagery that's more important than what image is circulating. So, but back to your question, um, um, and I think Galen Gerber is kind of a good example of that. It's actually a very slow example as well, where Galen, when you get off the elevator on the fourth floor, you're confronted with the largest painting in uh, in, in my section of the show, in the show altogether, um, and it looks like um, you know a gray wall, part of the architecture, but it ends up being this massive canvas, and it's a backdrop in which Galen then hangs other artists' work on, and um, you know up until the middle of. April, visitors will see a Trevor Sumisu, uh, two paintings, um, unstretched, uh, pinned onto the wall, hung onto Galen's backdrop, and then they will rotate out, and then there will be a Sherry Levine work and a David Hammond's work that will replace them. So Galen is creating these backdrops, which is a platformist position, where, he, you know, and again, we talk about platformists as being, or I do, um, again, uh, in a kind of generality, but at one point, you know, a platformist is creating space, um, creating a, a place to feature other people's work, but at the same time, there is, it's also considered a, a, um, a, a practice in which you are absorbing some of the authority of whatever is hanging on it. So, so it could be considered parasitic, where he's kind of, you know, if Sherry Levine is hanging on a Galen Gerber, something happens in terms of charging Galen's backdrop, and Galen as an artist with a relationship to somebody who has, um, you know, is well entrenched within a kind of history, a contemporary history. So it really kind of works both ways, and I really quite like that. But it, it's, um, you know, unlike uh, Julie Alt's uh, exhibition that she created within Stewart's show on the third floor. Um, I think you know Galen is much more slow. It's about things, even though you know the the backdrop itself, that gray wall, becomes almost invisible. It becomes um, it slips into what we consider an institution pretty quickly, or the institution, the space of the institution. Um, then I wanted to talk to you about some of the conceptual. Mm -hmm. um, artists like, for example, Ben Kenma, mm -hmm. um, and even the narrative David, you, David Foster Wallace, right, and right. your inclusion of David Foster Wallace. First of all, you know, people discuss this a lot. Yep. I mean, you know, this is a big subject that people are talking about. Um, but you did start your essay with uh, David Foster David, Wallace. David yeah. Foster Wallace. So yeah. it seems to me that you're thinking, you know, he, he sort of permeates the show. Right. So, so why did you pick David? Why did you do yeah. that? And also, why did you pick that particular last piece before he passed away? Oh, the Pale King. The, the Pale King. He was working on. Yeah, sure. I, so, I mean, of all. Yeah. I mean, by yeah. the way, did you go? Did you get that from his his family? Did they, um, how did you get his, those drugs? His family, his estate, had to sign off on the reproduction we used in the catalog. But the much of his archives, his written archives, is at the um, Ransom Center at UT Austin. Um, I see. So, so I borrowed it, right? So, the, so the, it wasn't like you brought another family or anything like that. Uh, no, I had a little conversation with Carol Green, who was very supportive. I wanted to make sure she's an artist herself, so I wanted mm -hmm. to make sure that she was okay. And I also talked to Jonathan Franson, um, who has become, friend, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a kind of a spokesperson. Um, and uh, Franson was uh, quite generous um, and a little befuddled by the whole inclusion or, or me wanting to include some of those notebooks. And uh, you know, the, the, in short, Franson uh, made this sweet quip that, you know, we authors do consider ourselves artists, but we would never consider, you know, the uh, the research materials as artwork. And um, uh, so so he had he was helpful in terms of giving me some insights. But I think to, um, uh, the, yeah, uh, the, the pushback, I think, you know, when the list came out, people people rolled their eyes, um, you know, and I thought that was surprising by the fact that we've had, the, the Whitney Biennial has uh, put forward Choreographers, filmmakers, musicians—that a writer wouldn't. You know, yeah, yeah there's actually writing is, is permeates this whole show. I mean, the cinema yeah. text, the other. Uh, no, that's right. That's right. Uh, um, uh, Critical Practices Inc. is somebody who I include, who as well as. Uh, but but it, uh, but but, it, but, the, but the thing is, it, it's different. It's a little bit different, which I actually think yeah. is fabulous. Yeah. But it's, it, it, yeah. it's a little bit different because you're putting them not as essays in part of the experience. You're making them as like you have Gary. I mean, it's not your right. place, but Gary Indiana. That's right. You know the people from Semiotex. That's right. Um, this is um, these are. Exhibitors in the show, David Foster yep. Wallace. Yep. So, tell me thinking well, about okay, that. Okay, so so David Foster Wallace was really important in terms of how I thought about structure for the for for 
for my exhibition or what I was thinking. And, you know, David Foster Wallace, I should understand that, you know, it's a hot-button issue by the fact that, you know, the man is culturally anointed a literary genius. And he is. I don't dispute that. But I also think that we as a culture do a disservice when we end up kind of, you know, yes, genius, that's fine, but we don't kind of unpack the kind of whole arc of his career. And what's interesting to me is when you start thinking about that room I keep talking about that had this kind of criticality, this kind of meta-thinking about what was going on. Again, I've heard a few artists refer to it as the 80s room because there are a lot of artists who made their careers in the 80s who are included in that room. And, you know, Foster Wallace, you know, at that point when he was in school, you know, starting to develop Infinite Jest, you know, was really, you know, Infinite Jest is an amazing example of, you know, a postmodern literature and kind of unpacking it in an amazing way. But he was also dealing in terms of subject with the idea of distraction. And you think of Infinite Jest as, you know, this constant seeking of distraction, that we were losing our humanity through seeking forms of entertainment and so forth. And, you know, he did that brilliantly. But when we start thinking about Pale King, you know, something else was coming into the fore. So if you start looking at his arc, you know... What was coming into the fore? What was coming into the fore was boredom. It was everything that was not distraction. It was actually talking about that if one had to make a space for being bored to be human. And when one starts... It's so important, particularly here and now, where we're constantly consuming, we're constantly, you know, involved in a kind of social networking that we don't control time. And we can control time in that space of boredom. And also that's when the imagination comes in. There's space for the imagination to develop. And then also later in his career, he started to really embrace ideas of the cliché and generalities and that, you know, we so like to be unique and subjective in the world that, you know, the idea of a cliché or a generality, you know, is distasteful. And the fact that, you know, Foster Wallace was saying that, no, that's a place to start. That's a place to bring contours around. And that's how I started thinking about organization for my show in terms of, again, some of those thematics that we were talking about earlier. But to have, again, these general contours around, you know, a kind of postmodern thinking or criticism, a critique that's happening in work now, but also materiality in painting. So creating these broad generalizations and thinking of it as a curriculum. You've been, I'm sure, scanning a lot of the didactics that the museum generated around the show and thinking about how do I begin to teach people about what's happening? How can I start to, what is it, bring in, lasso some ideas that are out there? Because there's so many of them. And not to be afraid of putting these big, broad loops around things like materiality or things like criticism or ideas in work of criticism or painting, abstract painting. And Foster Wallace gave me the kind of framework to do that and to know that that's a good place to start. And as a result, I think the show feels like it has a sense of organization. And I think Stuart and Anthony's show have a different kind of organization. Now, what about the idea of teachers? I mean, first of all, there are a lot of people who taught who were in this exhibition. And some of them, you actually have writing, like Stephen Barron's. Right. You have writing an essay. Talk about that decision and some of the people involved with that. Sure, sure. You know, one of the few things I really knew going into this task was that I wasn't going to look for new talent and go into emerging artist studios. I do that all the time. You have quite a few people who are no longer with us. No, that's right. And somebody in the press crunched the numbers and said the average age of the artists on my show is 55. And that makes a lot of sense. Well, it's very unusual for, again, survey of new art. Why did you do that? Right. So, Again, I had to. I ended up making a show that I wanted to look at, and a show that included artists that have continuously taught me over the years. And I'm not talking about literally; they weren't my teachers per se in graduate school, um, but uh, people that I kept looking to um, in terms of helping me, me navigate ideas of photography and what that means. Um, you know, over the past uh, 20 years, and it's you know, photography still is, is a, a bit of a mystery to me. Um, same thing with uh, you know the painter. 
figures that I'm looking at. Uh, again, my artwork doesn't look like anything in the show. I wasn't setting out to create an aesthetic that I develop in my own studio, um, but the thinking that helps me develop what comes out of my studio. And, um, um, you know, I just trusted that uh, if I would put a show together, a show that I wanted to see, um, that it would be the show that others would want to see, that they would be able to um, respond to some of the things. And again, whether it's some of the, the way I organize the show or whether it's just what I included in the show. Um, but in terms of not being interested in seeking out new talent, you know, I, I'm not quite sure what's conditioning um, emerging artists outside of the fact that, you know, we live at a time when there's more artists than there's ever been before and there's a, a kind of economy that supports arts in, in a way that we've never seen before. Those things are terribly interesting to me. I was more interested in uh, putting forward artists who've seen, you know, um, you know, the arcs in their career, um, you know, where attention would fall and what attention would be taken away and attention would fall. That's real life. And, you know, the idea is that we still want to be making work. We want to be in our studios when we're 55, 65, uh, 75. And uh, to underscore that, I think is a, a great service to young artists. Um, and, you know, being a teacher myself, um, you know, understanding that um, as a teacher I have influence and anybody else, all these other artists who, you know, teach at Princeton, teach at Yale, they too have influence on the next generation of young artists. So I'd rather look at influence than those who, you know, and, you know, for me to anoint some younger person and, and hopefully see them kind of, you know, bust through into a career move. I, I don't really value that at all. It's not my value system, so I didn't think it was uh, something that I could um, act on. Yes. Now, one last sort of theme I was thinking, the, the unmonumental, yeah. it, it, which is uh, something that I, I noticed uh, as a, another organizing principle. Is that right or what? what um, no, I think, I, I think that's, that's more right on Stewart's floor. When I was installing the work a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking how, how monumental many of the pieces um, that I'm including um, actually are. Um, you know, Sheila Hicks, this big vertical, uh, this vertical pillar of both synthetic and natural fiber of glorious color. You have Joel Otterson's um, beaded curtain that almost reaches two stories, um, the large-scale uh, canvases of Jacqueline Humphreys, and then Gretchen Bender, um, People in Pain, uh, uh, that was remade by Philip Vanderheiden. Um, Bender considered that to be a monument. Um, uh, so, uh, and, you know, exactly what you were saying in terms of the unmonumental being a kind of condition that we've been dealing with for some time now, um, and that we have a kind of inherent suspect to that which is monumental because somehow it has a relationship again to uh, large commercial galleries. I think about Hauser and Wirth being able to help artists produce these massive things that then get created and, you know, put into storage, whether it's, uh, you know, a private collector or whether it goes into an institution, institution, that we have this kind of knee-jerk response to seeing something large as being implicit in some kind of bloated economy, and that the, the monumental work in, in that I'm including um, has a different value structure uh, behind it, and that is, um, for a lot of these artists, I can speak about, again, Sheila and, and Joel and even uh, Philip Vanderheiden's remake of um, Gretchen Bender, uh, a, a total commitment to work and research and wanting to, you know, uh, be in touch with materials and materiality um, uh, writ large. Um, so I think that there is, um, I wouldn't at all call it a, a relationship to handicraft, but a relationship to you know, concepts of, of work and working and uh, material. It's a different value system than how we're, again, you know, I, I put the my nose up when I'm walking around. Yeah, that's right. right, right. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about, like, we talked a little bit, we did uh, talk about that a, a bit, but I want to ask you about the particular essays that you chose or the people that you asked to write essays, the essays that you chose, and what are they, you know, mm -hmm. what were you doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, thanks for asking about the catalog, because I think the catalog is just a trove of really interesting parallel content to what the exhibition right, each provides. Of you had different so we each had a very, you know, so the challenge for our um, designer, uh, Mark Owens, who's a pretty great designer, was to create three sections and, again, to um, somehow reflect the three floors that we're each engaging in. And um, my section looks very different than Anthony and Stewart's, even though we have, you know, different paper stock. Um, uh, 
So where Anthony and Stewart's section have this kind of interweaving between artist writing, uh, just reproductions of artist work, um, and uh, essays that were commissioned, um, I really kind of parsed mine very cleanly. And a matter of fact, I used the model of old Whitney catalogs going back into the 70s and the 80s, where um, you know I start out with my essay. Um, I asked Mark Owens if he would generate some information graphics, infographics that would accompany my essay, because I wanted to be transparent and let anybody who's picking up the catalog viewing the show, um, you know, just the kind of basic questions, the basic information in terms of what cities did I visit um, in terms of looking at artists, what's the average age of artists, what's the representation, of, how does gender break down, how many people did I actually have a working relationship in the show. So I just wanted to be as transparent as possible because often I think, um, you know, the biennial is, you know, a mind-bending mystery to, to many artists. Um, and then uh, what I wanted to do is not to bring in voices, um, critics, historians, um, authors from the outside to shape or frame um, you know, the here and now. I, I asked each artist that I included, all 53, to ask somebody, to have a conversation with somebody else. So, um, you know, some, in some cases, artists had conversations with their spouse, um, or a professional athlete, or a poet, um, or a critic. Um, I let them decide what they, what was important to them, what was the conversation they need to ha- needed to have at, at this given time. So it's really kind of a beautiful thing. I want to say that um, one of my favorite conversations is a um, Louise Fishman and Donna Nelson. They had conversations while walking around MoMA um, and looking at paintings. It's a it's a real beautiful thing. Um, a couple of the painters, I, I think, the, the, I, I didn't want to engineer any conversations, but I thought that if the painters could talk to one another, that would be interesting. And that didn't work out. So, um, like I was saying, Louise and Donna had a conversation, and then Pam Linz, Amy Silliman, and Molly Sakriman Hartong kind of broke off and had a conversation. And Jacqueline Humphreys and Laura Owens had a conversation. But those were the only ones I, I thought that maybe that would put kind of a, a, a rope in a little bit uh, of the conversation around painting that I wanted to have. Um, but yeah, it, it's really it's very rich and, and very wild. There's uh, two artists, uh, David Robbins and um, Peter Schuf, who had um, had conversations with uh, fictional people, mm-hmm. um, which is great. And Shauna Lecker, who uh, um, is, a, is doing a lot of research into the surrealist infighting, um, had conversations with uh, the deceased surrealists, and I think Freud jumped in at some point. Okay. That's a little bit about how you structure some of the work that you do at the Suburban. Don't yeah. you have like two people very often inviting someone else that's to, a, yes. to do um, exhibitions? I didn't even think about that, but that's exactly right. Yes. So thank you for pointing out the, um, the similarity of letting artists do or have conversations with who they want, with uh, how we've been able to, for 15 years, kind of manage the Suburban. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Your, your, um, your process of, of curating and not, not curating in a way, mm-hmm. um, inviting but not Mm-hmm. And sort of letting them. Was that how it worked here? You sort of did you did you pick pieces? Did you did you did you go to studios and pick pieces, or did you have artists mm-hmm. submit pieces? I mean, how, how did yeah, that process yes, work? Yeah, yes and no, yes and no. Um, you know, I, I knew that I could I couldn't step back the way I uh, the way I do with the suburban. Um, I, you know, I how don't. How do you do it in the suburban? How yeah, do you, do it here? you know, let's, let's get this yeah, no, sure. So, so with the the suburban, you know, um, I will meet somebody. Somebody will approach me and and be interested in doing a project, and I'll say, okay, let's schedule it. So, um, the the closest I come to, um, it's not even curating, but it's scheduling. It's a matter of when. When can this person come in from New York because of their schedule? So that's basically it. Otherwise, um, I make no... Uh, we, my husband and I, we don't even, you know, it's not that we want to show those blue monochromes, you know, we don't encourage you to show those blue monochromes, you know, use this space as an opportunity. You know best uh, as an artist in terms of what you need to do in a small space in the suburbs of Chicago. I need to trust you with that, and I will support that. You know, here, it was a little bit different. Obviously, I, I did, you know, it's, it's not a fair process. I have to remind people of that all the time. I had to select artists. I had to say yes to a handful of, I had to invite a handful of artists, but I also had to say no to many hundreds of artists. Um, uh, so what do you mean? Did you, did you, uh Look at a lot of people and then decide not to show them, or. or uh, uh, and I visited a lot of studios in which 
I had to get back to them and say, sorry, that, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope I can work with you in another capacity at some point, but right, I'm not right. going to be including you in the 2014 biennial. Right. Um, you know, and I did that because I've had in the past visits by Whitney curators before, and nothing is told to me. The whole thing is kind of shrouded in a kind of mystery. Right. Um, you know, you talk to some curators and they just don't want to hurt artists. They have right. a great respect for artists and they don't want to hurt your feelings. Can't help uh, right. And, and you know, we're, again, uh, you know, we are told no so many times that right. I think it's respectful actually to be prodded to the process and the understanding of it. Right. Um, it was, it was important to me, um, particularly for all the artists that I, I didn't know, I haven't met before, I haven't worked with at the Suburban or in another curatorial capacity, that um, I went to their studio, that I met with them, that I shook their hand before I invited them. Um, there were some artists that I've worked with many times before that that wasn't necessary, that we just had conversations about um, how I was thinking about the show was developing and then bringing them on board that way. But for everybody else, um, um, no, I just felt that I needed to have a conversation with them in hopefully their, you know, their studio or again, um, you know, looking at some images on a laptop. Maybe we should talk for a few minutes about your own work, your own practice, <laughs> your own art, and um, I understand you have a show coming up at the in, next year at James Cohen. Yeah, show. in the fall. Yeah, in the fall. What are you working on? Tell us what is going to be in that exhibition. Yeah, um, it just came off of uh, a nearly 25-year, a 25-year survey exhibition that was at MoCA Cleveland, and uh, it was very comprehensive in terms of some of the early film and video work. I was uh, collaborating with my husband, on that was included. Um, we rebuilt a simulacra of the suburban, so there was programming that happened in this little uh, space. Um, uh, little suburban cinder block, uh, yellow cream puff in the space. So it really had a range of my practices um, represented in that show. And um, I had the good fortune of revisiting some of the early paintings. The painting I started doing right when I came out of grad school and when I moved up to Milwaukee and first started thinking about um, a domestic pattern and the backdrop to kind of uh, a real middle-class life. Um, and I think I'm going to revisit that kind of painting. Um, I was really interested in looking at where they came from, my, my relationship to, you know, raising children has changed as my children have, have grown. Um, even the kind of physical space of my home has has changed. Um, you know, we're nearly not as impoverished as we were when we came out of school, and so uh, you know those patterns have have shifted um, and are. Have, they represent different things. So um, I'd like to, I would like to, that's my plan, is to kind of explore, to kind of circle back around um, and see see what um, the domestic yields for abstract painting. Um, and these are abstract paintings, correct? Yeah, you know, again, the early paintings, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, 92, 93, you know, they, they're abstractions by the fact that, you know, they're patterns, but, you know, they're, their source is a crocheted blanket right, or right. a paper towel pattern. So they are literal things, but they also, once they're transposed into the materiality and support of painting, um, they are def they're also abstractions. Can you talk a little bit about the pieces that you just showed now at the uh, armory? Yeah. And James Cook and James Cook. Yeah. Who's that big? Yeah. Big, uh, yeah, my oysters. Yeah, so I've been working on these series. And there's also these beautiful white paintings of them. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yes, they, yes. they actually remind they have a feeling a little bit to me of, I don't know if this is what you're intended, of light and space almost. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, no, and then the fact I've, I've dealt with um, projections and spectrums often flocked onto walls that have this kind of phenomena in terms of breaking down light and spectrum. Um, yeah, and the, the, white, the white relief work that you're talking about is basically taking um, um, a, a really loose uh, weave, something like a burlap or a woven, woven, uh, woven, uh, woven uh, it's a complicated uh, material, um, but it's, it's basically um, fiberglass. And by removing warp, some of the warp and weft, you end up with a unique pattern, and then I am encasing that. I am mounting it on board and encasing it in gesso. So you really have this kind of relief going on. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a bit of the Penelope myth in terms of the unweaving, the undoing going on, but you end up with um, something more spectacular than the even field of um, the original material. Um, so, uh, so yeah, being, and again, this is the Sheila Hicks influence on me, who's somebody I'm very uh, 
proud to be able to have included in the exhibition. Um, just in terms of that uh, relationship to, you know, something that's craft-based, material-based, and pushing it up and into painting. And then uh, the suspended piece that you're talking about um, that's up at the Armory right now at the uh, James Cohan booth um, is a series I've been doing and working on with my husband called My Oyster. Um, and it really, you know, has this kind of frontal pattern orientation. In this case, it's kind of hammered out um, aluminum galvanized garbage cans that have kind of beautiful um, uh, corrugated pattern. And then on one side, hanging um, a constellation of some of the paintings I'm working on, some of the silver points I'm working on, some artifacts that maybe my daughter has created, um, photographs. And so kind of the representation of the world um, where um, uh, you know, the work and the everyday kind of cluster on the back of these things. So it's two-sided and they have a tendency to spin. Um, and often the uh, my oysters are just you know, an 80-inch large tondo um, with the you know, the point painting that I end up making, the Archimedes spiral, and then installing on the back of that canvas um, the same kind of selection of work from the everyday. So is there anything about the, the Whitney Biennial that I haven't, you haven't told us that you really would like our audience to come away with? Mm. You know, I, you know it's, it's getting the expected uh, negative press, but I think if you start thinking of it, it, it you know, it, it's confusing people, and I don't think it needs to be as confusing as it is. Um, if you make uh, the biennial plural right now, you have three biennials, and if you think about it that way, I think it'll be easier to kind of break down. Um, and then once you break that down, then you can kind of start adding up again, just in terms of breaking it down and then start putting it all into a kind of con a, a bigger context. Um, but I can tell you I've learned a lot, and it's um, been an extraordinary experience. But usually when things are difficult, people, maybe people don't get it, they react. Maybe not right. Maybe later, yeah. I'll process it and, and it'll be more better understood. Yeah, you know, and I think I, I think so. it'll be interesting to see how it, uh, you know, how history um, uh, judges the last biennial in the Breuer Building. But um, you know, something early on that I was really excited about um, with this Whitney Biennial conceit is that curating actually does become content. So you can see how an artist would curate a contemporary biennial. You can see how a professional curator who has expertise in film and video, who has a job at MoMA, as a curator at MoMA, would put together a show. And then now somebody who knows his way around music and ephemera, um, who's based in Philadelphia, how he would organize a show. And, and so that's, um, I think that's really fascinating and should be looked at. It, you know, finally, I, that's fine. Bring on the negative press. But I think at the same time, it's um, uh, it's it's worth thinking about it, 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 the, the whole the whole conceit underscores the fact that we're living in multiple art worlds and here's just yeah. three out of you know many 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 and that alone should be comforting. Yeah. <laughs> no, and also you know, I one of the things I, I I really wanted I was so interested in you is the fact that you know you can have an art career anywhere. Yeah. You know you don't have to be yeah. in New York City. Anymore. Yep, that's right. You know, it, and I mean, coming from LA, maybe that's you know, we want, we want to feel that way. But um, you know, it's not just Los Angeles; it's, yeah. it's everywhere. Yeah. It's, you know, and, and Ms. You know, the right. fact that you came out of I hate to say it, Wisconsin, <laughs> true. and end up with a, with a right. space in Chicago, and here you're doing the Whitney Biennial. Yeah. That to me is very inspiring. Well, thank you. I, I think you know that distance gives me context. I can see. I can see the blind spots in the center that the center can't see, and, and uh, um, there are some things that are not available to me because I, I hail from the Midwest, but I also think that uh, the distance allows me to see a, a, a bigger picture. Exactly. Anyway, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been fabulous, and I really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate your this. interest. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay.